Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I am joined, as always, uh, by Carl Truman and Amy Bird. And today we want to wade into some fairly controversial waters. Um, you may know, and if you don't know, it's because you're never on social media. And I don't know how you can live your life well apart from social media. Isn't that right, Carl? All right. Um, so, but, yeah, exactly. But, but I would say you don't even have to be involved in, uh, in critical uh, or in, in uh, social media. If you're a Southern Baptist or in the PCA, then you're going to um, have, uh, you know, you're going to know a little bit about what we're, what we're talking about today. The subject um, is critical theory. Uh, the guest is Neil Shinby. And Neil, we are really glad that you chose to be uh, with us today. If, if you're on, if, if you folks are on Twitter at all, then, you know, Neil has a, a presence in speaking to the issue of, uh, of uh, critical theory and the gospel and uh, has been contributing some really, really helpful things, some helpful articles, and a few things that we want to ask him about. Uh, but, but Neil, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Now, Neil, um, first of all, before we ask you about, you know, what critical theory is, tell us just a little bit about yourself um, and uh, uh, as well as kind of your partner in crime, just in terms of a project that you all are working on together kind of to help us understand where you're coming from and, and your interest in this issue of critical theory. Sure. So I have a background in science. I have a PhD in theoretical chemistry from UC Berkeley. I became a Christian in graduate school and I kind of got interested in apologetics, uh, you know, after, at Yale, actually, I was doing a postdoc. So I, you know, did the normal stuff about the reliability of the gospels, yeah. arguments for God's existence, things like that. But a few years ago, I began noticing uh, sort of drift theologically in people I knew personally and in public figures, and I couldn't figure out how, what was going on. I saw them latch onto social justice issues, which I thought just meant applying biblical principles to laws and society, but yeah. it turned out that's not what they meant because they began to drift more and more into unorthodox and heterodox beliefs. And around that time, I read a book called Race, Class, and Gender, and I realized that these people were drifting because they were adopting a new worldview that was conflicting with Christianity. So I began to really research this issue, and uh, my friend you alluded to named uh, Dr. Pat Sawyer, we, we met providentially around that time, and he was doing his dissertation on critical theory uh, as a PhD in cultural studies, but his work focuses on critical theory, critical pedagogy, uh, and he's now a, doc, a professor at UNCG. And so we got involved in this project of ex you know, understanding critical theory and explaining to Christians both the good and the bad of critical theory. So, you know, so somebody's listening and they're saying, okay, I, I think I've heard the term critical theory. What, what's, your, what's your definition or, or your best way of, of explaining to someone who might be new to this what critical theory is? Sure. So colloquial, colloquially, the term often used is cultural Marxism. Right. That's a colloquial term. It's also used in academia a little bit, 
the more popular term is critical theory. And in a sentence, critical theory is an ideology which divides the world into dominant oppressor groups and subordinate oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, uh, or sexual orientation, gender identity, age, uh, uh, physical ability, and a host of other factors. So it sees oppressed groups as being subordinated to oppressor groups by something called hegemonic power, which is the ability of the dominant group to impose their values on culture. So the dominant group decides what is valuable and good and normal, and they sort of brainwash all of society into thinking that is true, and including the oppressed people. And then oppressed people need to be liberated from that hegemonic power and shown that actually it's all a lie, that these values are not universal, absolute values, but they're the norms that are uh, instituted by this, this powerful ruling class. So that's a whole project of critical theory. We've been looking at uh, critical theory, of course. Uh, the work of the Frankfurt School is presumably central to, to the project, uh, with its rather interesting fusion, it seems to me, of, of, of Freudianism and, and Marxism. So how do you see critical theory as, as playing out in, in contemporary sexual politics, which, of course, is one of the, the key areas where the church is, uh, the conservative church is being challenged at the moment? That's right. So the interesting thing is that critical theory is often equated with the, Mark, the Frankfurt School, uh, Horkheimer, Adorno, uh, later Marcuse, but actually contemporary critical theory draws on a lot of different sources. For example, post-structuralists like Foucault, Derrida, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw is a major figure uh, who, who coined the phrase intersectionality. Um, they draw on uh, uh, Antonio Gramsci, the neo-Marxist theorist. So there are a lot of different uh, sources for contemporary critical theorists like Robin D'Angelo, or Eduardo Bonilla Silva. And so you can't just limit it to the Frankfurt School, who actually had much less to say about some of these contemporary topics like sexuality. Um, but yes, uh, that framework has absolutely been applied by uh, queer theory, gender studies, feminism, fourth wave feminism. They all employ this general framework of critical theory that's derived from all of these different sources throughout history. And so hearing that, <clears throat> somebody might think, okay, Neil, if, if, that's, if that's the wellspring of, of critical theory, if, if critical theory is, is, is social Marxism, you know, how, how can you also say that there's some things we can learn from it? Sure. I think the, the proverb or the maxim, all truth is God's truth, is a good one here. So, for example... There are elements of truth in worldviews that are wildly wrong that Christians should still appreciate. So I use the example of intersectionality. You know, this is a concept developed by Kimberly Crenshaw. And in its narrow form, all intersectionality says is that our identities interact in complicated ways. So um, a poor woman is not just poor, plus she's a woman. That being a poor woman is somehow different than being poor and a woman. So this is why, for example, why do we have uh, female uh, women and children in homeless shelters? Right? Why do we need just those? And the answer is because poor women, homeless women, are uniquely vulnerable in a way that a poor man or a rich woman is not. So that idea is actually kind of like, well, it's common sense. Okay, sure, but it's a, a lens we can use to look at social problems. 
An example I also use is, uh, why does your church have, maybe your church has a ministry to unwed mothers? Well, because they don't really fit into the single women's ministry or the mother's ministry because unwed mothers have unique needs. Mm -hmm. So you can see how that concept can be used very fruitfully by Christians without bringing any of this, you know, critical theory baggage or the neo-Marxist baggage. And yet those tools are indeed embedded in and emerge out of this very anti-biblical worldview that we have to be on our guard against. And so if let's say I'm a, a PCA pastor, which I am a PCA pastor, let's say I'm a PCA pastor who, um, who uh, seems to be kind of uncritically excited about, uh, let's say, um, uh, James Cone's works, and I'm tweeting out quotes from, from James Cone and, and just encouraging people in general, man, you know, you've got to read the cross and the lynching tree, and man, we need to get back to, to some of these things that James Cone was saying. And, and you had a chance for a private audience with me. What, what would you say to me? How would you caution me? Yeah, I mean, so James, liberation theology, um, it really does seem to overlap to a large extent with critical theory, but I think it is a, it is a separate thing. What I would say is, number one, if you haven't really delved into, say, black liberation theology and the extreme heterodoxy of, say, James Cone, and you're just uncritically thinking, well, this is cutting edge, and I care about race, and I care about justice, therefore, I'm just going to lift up this guy who talks about race and justice, I'd say that's very naive. Right. I mean, so at the beginning, I would just say pastors should be very careful uh, to protect their flock in the sense of appreciate that they might not be examining these things very critically. They might say, oh, my pastor tweeted out this guy. He must be sound. Right. So you have to be careful. And I I caught flack for this because when I said – I, I supported Resolution 9 in the SBC, which, which was a statement about the, both the dangers and the truth in critical race theory and intersectionality, because people said, look, we understand that you can be very nuanced and very careful and very critical of these ideas and try to extract these nuggets of truth, but in the main, they're poison. Yeah. I think that's a legitimate concern is that you have to be careful that your congregation is not, you say, oh, well, eat the meat and spit out the bones. But no one says, eat the meat and spit out the poison, right? If the meat's poisoned, (laughs) you can't spit it out. So I would tell the pastor, hey, before you go on the James Cone tweeting spree, think about how you're going to be received by 18-year-old social justice activist who's in your church or anyone who might not be very um, careful. Yeah, and is there anything, as you think about those few things, that just in terms of God's, you know, common grace and that we can you know, find some things that are true, even in a, a larger system that's wildly unbiblical. Is there, is there any of those things that we can grasp out of, out of critical theory that we can't get from forces that don't have, you know, the poison of, of critical theory? Yeah. And, and here's where I'd say probably not, right? Because if all truth is God's truth, then it's, possible to engage in these ideas without the, the false framework, right? So, for example, you can approach geometry without buying into, you know, pagan philosophy, right. but, but of course you can, right? No, one, no yeah. one needs to go back to Pythagoras to learn geometry. You can get it from anywhere else. So I'd say in the same way, you know, you can extract these truths that are true from critical theory and then present them in a way that's 
completely devoid of any unbiblical content. So yeah, I would say if in a perfect world, there would be lots of Christians writing from a biblical perspective on issues of power and law and race. But because there just aren't that many, um, it doesn't, you know, it's possible to go to these other sources. But like I said, you have to be very careful. Yeah. What is the ultimate value, the ultimate end for critical theory? Like, yeah, yeah. Liber- good question. Uh, liberation. Yeah. That is the liberation. So um, the central project, expanding, going back to the Frankfurt School, even back to Marx, is liberating people from all the forces of oppression. Uh, and, but remember that if you view the, the power and hegemonic power in particular as the way in which people are oppressed, you have to free them not just from literal chains or literal violence or literal slavery, you have to free them from mental slavery and bondage to norms and, and morality and the patriarchy. So you free them from things like believing that uh, men and women are different or from believing that certain forms of sexuality are wrong. That's, that's bondage, and you liberate them from those patriarchal, bourgeois ideologies. Doesn't it then just become a mirror image of the same system that they're opposing? Like, if they're just looking for liberation to become the same as their oppressors, you know, like, is it freedom? Putting, putting power in the hands of someone else. Is it having else power, finally. or is it actually, the, you know, biblically, like, the ability to serve others? Right, so they would. So that's the big question here. What's the end game? And of, so there are two answers there. In the long term, they would say that we're going to achieve a state of equity, where equality—the equity is the term, the term of uh, choice. They would achieve a state of equity in which power is shared. They would say Mm -hmm. that's the end goal: that everyone is sharing power. No group is ascendant, and we're all working for the common good. However, in the short term, how do you achieve that goal of equity? Well, we have to overthrow these deeply enshrined values of patriarchy and white supremacy and uh, you know, gender domination, all the overturn uh, heterosexism, uh, cisgender normativity. We have to overturn all of these oppressive systems by a reversal of power. So the people that were subordinate have to have achieved as this disproportionate power to impose equality on culture until we achieve a state in which we've erased all of these false ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, in my own discipline of history, one of the things I've said to the students is, uh, you know, we look at, I teach a bit of history, and we look at uh, different kinds of narratives that have been offered, you know, African-American history, gay history, etc. I say to the students, you know, I have no objection as a historian to voices that have not been heard being heard and, and I would say expanding the narrative. But it seems to me that the game in critical theory is not really to expand the narrative, it's to destabilize mm-hmm. the narrative, to actually do what you're saying here. And that is to not so much to construct something in the first instance as to, to undermine, weaken and overthrow something. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. So within critical theory, there's an idea, actually it goes back to Marx the idea of a false consciousness, that the oppressor group has this ideology they've imposed on culture and they actually believe it and it blinds them. So, and, and then also the, the suppressed groups buy into it too and they're blinded by this false ideology. So the idea that, say, maleness or whiteness or heterosexuality are right and good and superior. 
So that, that, that narrative is false and it blinds people and they have to be awakened to the reality of um, this hegemonic power. So as you're saying, they don't just want additional voices heard. Their claim is that the voice you're hearing now is a false voice. That narrative is actually false. And the correct narrative is the one that is held by these marginalized groups who've achieved a liberated consciousness. They've, they've awakened. They've gotten, you know, colloquially, they've gotten woke. Mm-hmm. And now that they're woke, they can see the reality and they have to, to free you, liberate you from this false consciousness. Which, of course, renders the whole thing to be a kind of Gnostic knowledge. Absolutely. Any argument you were to raise to, to challenge their challenge to the dominant narrative is itself merely evidence of how deeply you are embedded in the, the cultural hegemony that currently prevails, uh, which raises questions of can one debate such people? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a great book. Uh, well, not, it's not great in the, in the sense of being a good book. It's... Mm a very informative book for the dynamic you just mentioned. Um, it's called right, so Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. Mm-hmm. I recommend reading it if you want to get a sense of exactly what you said. So she basically says in the book that all whites are racist. And if you deny that you're racist, you show that you're racist because you're being fragile. You're not admitting So people that are not racist, but yeah. people that admit they're racist are not fragile. But if you deny you're racist, then you show that you're racist by being fragile about ra- your racism. So, yeah, it's, a, it's a called a, a Kafka trap, that denying your guilt is admission of guilt. It's like that moment in the life of Brian where Brian denies he's the Messiah and thereby proves he's the true Messiah. <laughs> yeah. Only the true Messiah would deny that he's the Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is getting deep. So, so Neil, let me, ask, <clears throat> let me ask you this. As, um, as you think through um, some, some of the, uh, the Christians who have, who have embraced much of uh, critical theory, um, certain, you know, theologians and activists, uh, and, and some of critical theories, uh, cousins like, like liberation theology and black liberation theology. Do you, do you notice any common threads in terms of those, those things about the gospel and those things about Orthodox Christian doctrine that they all tend to attack or undermine or, or, or deny? Like are there certain things that are at the core of Christianity that those those professing Christians who have really embraced these ideas uh, almost always seem to deny? So what I've noticed is a trajectory, and so people are on various points along the trajectory. And so, and actually, you know, I'm a scientist, and so what I value is predictive power. So when I see people that are espousing what what I detect as very clearly. Uh, critical theory influenced ideas. They're using language of critical theory. When I see that, the first thing I do is, I don't know who they are. I, I don't know their theology, but I Google their name and I Google their name and then I, with LGBTQ. Ah. Not knowing who, you know, what they believe yet. And yeah. almost in numerous times, I think three times now, I have done that. And I've seen not only were they, were they denying the legitimacy of LGBTQ affirming theology you know, five years ago, they are now affirming it from point A to point B because they've embraced this language. So that's, that's a, for me, what it starts like, it starts with, they first begin embracing social justice. And now again, I am not saying that everyone who talks about social justice is, is on this path, but you, you have to understand that critical theory is at the forefront. It, it's the, it's the, the framework uh, that the secular social justice movement uses to understand reality. 
So that that so if you embrace social justice in in our culture today, you have to be very careful because often these organizations are just suffused with critical theory. And then from there, so again, I'm not saying that everyone who uses that phrase is doing this, but they have to be careful because then what happens next is so that they embrace they embrace it because they embrace um, uh, they they want to care about racism and sexism. I, I say amen to that. We should as Christians completely reject any form of racism or sexism. But if you embrace the critical theory analysis of racism and sexism, but they've redefined those terms completely, the first thing that falls would you'd say they begin um, having, a, having a, uh, I would say, a softer and softer view, a biblical view of gender. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, critical theory would view any, um, anything, as, anything patriarchal, anything which would see a unique place for men, uh, that would be patriarchy, that would be oppression. So they have to... <laughs> We're pointing at Amy, but keep going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's often the first stop. And so they, they begin to express concern for you know, the role of women in the church, and that, may, that might change. Maybe, maybe they, become, they become egalitarian, uh, or they become self-professing feminists. Then the next step would be uh, changing their views on uh, LGBTQ issues, because, again, that's oppression. Heterosexism is oppression. And then, then the next stop would be uh, denying the exclusivity of Christ, uh, being questioning the idea of hell or church discipline, because again, those are oppressive. You're excluding people, and exclusion is a form of oppression. Right. And uh, you can trace this trajectory for, I mean, I'll, I'll throw out one name, but Jen Hatmaker. Yeah. Long before she kind of changed her views explicitly to those of a pro- progressive Christianity, she was on that path. You can go back to five years ago and watch her embracing. Right. This language of racial justice and sexual justice and gender justice, and and now you look at where she's gone. Um, So I I just, I just want to be very clear. I'm not saying if you hear anyone use the phrase social justice or oppression or that they're radicals. I'm just saying that there is an underlying worldview here that is poison and it will carry you places if you're logically consistent that you don't want to go. Which is, you know, something we do need to critically engage with because if you do care deeply about issues of racism and sexism within the church, um, you know, and you do see blind spots in those areas, we need the proper Mm -hmm. language and the proper categories to challenge that and to challenge ourselves and to, to have better conversations and listen to one another. Yeah. Um, you don't have to go to the poison to properly engage and, those you know, things. And I think that's yeah. where, in some ways, the, the evangelical church has failed. And so, you know, there's this big category of people who, you know, do want to see um, improvement, mm-hmm. you do want to address major wounds mm-hmm. in the church. And, and, and I think that that makes you more, you know, susceptible. Yeah. It's an interesting comparison to be drawn with, you know, 20, 30 years ago, anybody arguing for women's ordination was being denounced by some church leaders saying, if you go down that route, you'll embrace homosexuality. Yeah. What's interesting is those very same church leaders today are silent when individuals are embracing critical theory as a way of addressing racism. Right. And it strikes me as, as very interesting that uh, I would say they were very vocal in protesting the lesser of the two problems. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you know, they're, they're silent, right. eloquently silent. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because, you know, at one level, 
it's hard to, uh, anybody who says they're anti-racist, it's hard to to speak against them without appearing to be racist yourself. Right. But yeah. I think we're you know, we could be selling selling the family silver here. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you guys are pointing at me when he starts talking about patriarchy or whatever. <laughs> and then Todd's pointing at Carl and I when you start talking about feminism. And I mean, I feel like it is hard because, you know, as you're saying with critical theory that you begin to label people and then dismiss them. So like white males are dismissed, right? And not able to have a contribution that's valuable anymore. However, you know, you see that a lot in the church. I mean, I see it on social media all the time. Like, I will be accused of being a feminist or, you know, and then I'm, what I say is then dismissed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we can participate in that same kind of behavior or system of thought with just labeling people and then dismissing them and then we don't ever go forward and having conversations and, and instead we become polarized with these, um, you know, critical theory versus, you know, the white male power. Right. I, I try to encourage people to focus not on the labels. Like, that's why I don't like the, the neo-Marxist or cultural Marxist label. Yeah. But what I say is focus on explicit statements. If someone right. says something explicitly false, then say this is false. But on the other hand, I do think we do have to acknowledge the underlying ideology too. So you say, why not just critique all these false statements individually? Right. Well, it's like if you hear someone saying, you know, speak reality into existence, all these Christian pastors saying that, okay, you can individually address those erroneous statements, but it's worth looking into word of faith theology and saying, well, where is this coming from? Well, we need to debunk the, we need to go to the root right. and root out these errors at the very bottom and the foundation because they're working up through the entire edifice. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one of the things I've noticed, one of the, the doctrines that I see commonly denied by a lot of those Christian thinkers um, who, who have been heavily influenced by critical theory or liberation theology is they seem to always deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ, mm-hmm. you know, on, on the grounds, at least in part that it, it's, it's a, it's a hegemony of oppression. You know, the father is abusing the son unjustly, uh, you know, is, is, is how they read it. And, 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 and so substitutionary atonement just furthers this hegemony of, 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 of oppression. And, and that, you know, I mean, James Cone, you know, was, was, uh, you know, very, very hostile towards the idea of, of, of a substitutionary atonement um, because he, you know, he read, the, the experience of, of the abuse of blacks within the country, he read that back into uh, uh, substitutionary atonement, atonement and saw it as a tool of the white man to continue to use the abuse of black people. But that, that's, the, that, that's kind of the, the, the thinking uh, that, 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 that's employed there. And, and, and it shows how critical theory gets in. And, it, and it's not something that you can just easily zip on to the gospel. Be, because it, it, it undermines some of the very core doctrines upon which we stand. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea that hegemonic power is oppressive, well, the, the Bible is just one big hegemonic narrative, right, from A to start to finish. It's, it's about God justifying his complete sovereignty and power over all creation. And that's right. So, 
that's that's you just can't fuse that with with Christianity, and just, that's not going to work. And the entire Christian storyline is that God is all the power, and God is good, and we're sinners. And right. yeah, you can't you can't. Uh, they're not they're not two or three competing equally valid narratives to choose from. There's just one. Yeah. Before um, before Carl starts to kind of wrap us up, what what can we be looking forward to from from you in terms of 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 uh, ideas that are going to be put out in the public by way of publishing? Sure. Uh, Pat Sawyer and I are writing a booklet for um, Ratio Christi. Ratio Christi is a uh, apologetics ministry. It's international. And we're writing a booklet on critical theory for them. Should be out in the fall. Okay. We're, ho- we're hoping to, ex- and I think it's, well, I won't, I won't say that. We might also get it co-published with another publishing okay. company. Um, we're also hoping to turn that booklet into a book at some point. Um, but we're not sure when we're still working on that. We're, um, but in the meantime, yeah, I just keep, I'm going to, as much as I can, I homeschool my four kids. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little bit busy. I guess um, <laughs> I, I would encourage our listeners. Um, if you're on Twitter, follow uh, Neil Shinvi. He's, he's really worth following. You'll find his interactions with people to be a model of how it should really be done. informed yep. and charitable. Yep. Yep. I really appreciate how, how that. It should be done and how he's been able to, to leverage that really um, limited format to actually communicate a, mm-hmm. a lot of information in such a limited format. So you'll, you'll be helped if, if you go to, to Twitter and, and follow him there. Uh, we, we would encourage you to do that. Well, it's been great having you on the show, Neil, uh, touching on issues that I think are hardy perennials. This may be the, simply the latest iteration of the kind of challenges the church faces. But I was thinking, Todd, as you described James Cone there, there's a sense in which uh, it's, it's, it's a similar psychologization of the Christian faith and of Christian doctrine that we, we see in Friedrich Schleiermacher in the, in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. So uh, it's, it's both new, but also it connects to, to old problems and troubles the church has had throughout the ages. So thanks very much for joining us, Neil. Uh, if you're listening and uh, would like a, a chance to win a copy of a book that touches on some of the issues that Neil has uh, spoken about today, please go to our website, mortificationspin.org, and you can there enter for an opportunity to get a copy of that hideous strength. Uh, Todd's written the title down for me here, but I see that he can't spell the word hideous. <laughs> Uh, that's, uh, anyway, the, the correctly spelled that hideous strength will be available via our website. And if while you're there, you uh, feel inspired to make a donation to uh, the podcast, please do so. We are a, a listener-supported program. And Carl's wearing pink pants. It, they're salmon, please. They're salmon. I will not put up with this racist hegemony <laughs> coming from this man. Therefore, over here. we dismiss yeah. everything you said. That, that pantist comment can be uh, <laughs> safely ignored. So uh, it just remains for me to say to you all uh, thanks for listening to us, and we hope to be with you again next week. Why can't you see what you're doing to me when you don't believe a word I say? Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org 
where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about the question of physical and sexual abuse, of course, is is one thing, uh, a more subtle, perhaps, but maybe equally important and serious question surrounds the matter of spiritual abuse. That interview is next time. Join us then. is the second time we've had you on, right? It is. So yes. you're another brave. He's an alumni. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, we have not ruined his reputation. <laughs> and and I and I'll just say whenever Terry walks around at, at General Assembly, depending on the room he's walking into, people either say, "Oh, hey Terry," or or people start humming the Darth Vader uh, you know kind of theme. It's <laughs> it's one of those two one of those two things. And so hey. uh, it's, it's amazing, and I don't know what I've done to earn such a reputation, but somehow I... <laughs> okay. yeah, Somebody once said to me, yeah, here comes the worship cops, and I said, yeah, and you're arrested. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pistol whip you now. 